movie ferret sacrifice ever. The back the Betamax of the Vargas spin-offs. A Ross Abbott's Madhouse cosplay kids. Processing the prison test match special. I can't remember if it was the first leg or the second leg. What was actually in the tandy? Hello, I'm Tim Burton, and welcome to the fourth in the series of compilations of highlights from Lots of Familiar, a podcast in which myself and the guests talk about six things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. Some time back, for no other reason than pure mischief, myself and Ben Baker, who you might have heard on previous editions of Lots of Familiar, decided to do a webpage full of spoof BBC Records and Tapes album covers. One of these, putting two shows together that should never really be put together under any circumstances, was The Kids from Threads. There never was an album based on threads, of course, but you'll find copies of the Kids From Fame album in pretty much any charity shop you go into. But when writer Paul Kirkley appeared on the show, it wasn't that first album that he wanted to talk about. This is, I guess, what you might call the Kids From Fame's difficult second album, the Kids From Fame Again. So as you, Tim, will know better than anyone in the world, I imagine, the first Kids From Fame album was BBC Records' biggest ever seller, I believe. And it had all the hits, Star Maker, Desdemona, High Fidelity, High. And it was such a big hit, in fact, that they rush released a follow-up three months later. And I think it's fair to say that it was very much a case of the rest of the rest on this one. Uh, but me and my sister, Joanne, who are massive Fame fans, uh, we loved it anyway. I've got to say, The Kids From Fame Again isn't really the best title. It's almost daring you to get annoyed with them. You know, oh, it's The Kids From Fame Again. <laughs> and looking at the track listing, it seems to be the songs that they probably didn't have earmarked for albums and singles from the early... I mean, I noticed Shusha Shirovsky is on there, which... For anyone who doesn't know it, it's a song about one of the tutors who had a very heavy accent, and it worked fine as a joke in the programme. I'm not convinced it really works on record. No, well, I mean, it's a synth-pop number that rhymes Chirovsky with Tchaikovsky, so uh, in one sense, it it was pioneering because it was a few years before Falco's Rock Me Amadeus, I suppose. Pioneering in that way, and sticking with the classical theme, there's also, it's sonata mozart which is basically an instrumental sort of a hooked on classics reworking of mozart's piano sonata in c major complete with guitar solo uh, which i loved at the time and i'm slightly ashamed to say it's probably still the only reason i can whistle sonata in c major to this day is that title supposed to be a pun because it, it's a sonata mozart i can't work it out if it is i, I don't think so. it would only kind of work in a heavy italian accent which is the wrong country entirely for mozart of course and you mentioned mannequin i love your frozen grin there at the top of this which was of course uh, leroy's heartfelt love letter to a shop dummy and i think it's fair to say it, it gets a bit weird that song doesn't it yeah you could really turn it on. It's a love so sweet and tender. Oh, the joy of sweet surrender. He's addressing to this plastic shop dummy, basically. So, you know, there's a cup for every sauce, as they say. Well, I seem to remember that in the episode that was in, wasn't it? I don't think it was Doris. I think it was one of the other ones didn't turn up to a rehearsal. So they did it with a mannequin. And then when she turned up, they said, I'm sorry, you cut from the show. It works better with a mannequin, which is even weirder. <laughs> Everyone's a critic, aren't they? We've replaced you with a shop dummy. But again, it was a few years before the film Mannequin. So I guess... You know, the kids from fame, they, they they were forward-thinking kind of people. Well, they were, but they weren't too forward-thinking about a second album, because one thing I went to check was, you know, what everyone remembers about the first Kids from Fame album is they were just 
dozens of hits from it. Not literally dozens, but you couldn't go a couple of weeks without there being another Kids from Fame hit. I mean, you've mentioned half of them already, but I think the biggest success from this was Mannequin itself, which got to number 50. And when your song only gets to number 50 and it's being plugged every week on BBC Two, I think you're in trouble by then. But Fame went on for a while after this, didn't it? It did. Fame went, yeah, it went on for a few years, didn't it? It kind of entered the kind of Twilight Janet Jackson era. And they even did some more albums. There was the Kids from Fame Sing For You. That was the third album. And the Kids from Fame Live. So they really milked this cash cow until the others squeaked. But yeah, you're right. They they never scored another hit after that first album. So it was uh, it's very much of the moment, wasn't it? Well, it was. But I mean, it's easy to forget, no matter what short space of time it was, how huge fame was. I mean, it gets reduced now to the single being number one and the fact that the film sometimes rolls around. I mean, it rolls around on bank holidays now, but it, it used to be on last thing at night because that's the weirdest thing. The original film, was it an 18 or an X rather in those days? And yet, you know, you get this program aimed at children. And I think in the mid 80s, wasn't it repeated in the summer holiday mornings? That's right. Yeah. And, the, and me and my sister were shocked and frankly disappointed when we first saw Alan Parker's film because obviously some of the characters are different actors and but yeah it's just it's very it's kind of quite dark and quite sweary and quite sexual and it's yes it's a very very different proposition altogether and if you want to know more about BBC records and tapes then you'll be wanting my book top of the box more details timworthington.org when musician and now podcast host Gareth F. Hirons made his second appearance on the show, because obviously we didn't do enough to bring back Sizzling Bacon Monster Munch last time, he wanted to talk about a band that was responsible for a very different kind of flop album. Sweet 75 were only the band Nirvana could have been. They were formed by Chris Novoselic, former bassist from Nirvana. He did consider joining Dave Grohl in Foo Fighters, but both decided that the, the pressure on them to deliver and deliver a Nirvana-style project when they actually wanted to do two separate things, it would, would be too much and I don't blame him for that. Chris formed the band, he was on guitar, bass and <sighs> accordion <laughs> because apparently he apparently he really loves the accordion. Um <laughs> And they didn't have that on Polly. Ah, but they did have it on Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam on Nevada Unplugged, the Vaseline's cover. Okay, that's me told. <laughs> yeah, he formed it with a Venezuelan board singer called Fantastic Nom de Plum here, Eva Las Vegas, which I just think is fantastic. And she impressed him when she was hired to sing at his wife's birthday party. Then that old chestnut of not being able to hold down a decent drummer reared its ugly head. By the time their self-titled debut album was released, and it's not actually that bad, I should say. It sounds a bit like uh, Meat Puppets or Minutemen, so sort of things that Chris would have been influenced by in the early days of Nirvana, with sort of uh, an L7 or Alanis Morissette. I don't mean Alanis Morissette in a bad way, as I usually do, but, you know, just, just, just a little hint of that in sort of vocals. So picture that sound and now picture it being 1997 when the album came out a little bit behind the time Nevada Mania had worn off and the noise they were making wasn't current good enough little album like I say but they never did another one and they split up in 1999 and after 1999 the next thing I can find out about them is that they split up in 2000 so I'm assuming they must have got back together in the middle and I do know they were trying to record a second album the Voslik then went on to form Eyes Adrift with Kirk Kirkwood from the Meat Puppets and then played in Flipper for whom I saw him play in 2006 and that's the only time I've ever seen Christopher Voslik play it's a bit of a shame for me this one that, that it didn't really take off because I, I, I'm a bass player myself and I was a huge Nirvana fan well I am a huge Nirvana fan I was really looking forward to Sweet 75 I was looking forward to them more than Foo Fighters and that means I've backed the uh, Betamax of Nirvana spin-offs 
Well, I think you're absolutely right about them arriving too late, being a bit too behind the times. Because I remember very clearly the first thing that I knew about them was, I think it was actually, it was in the middle of 1995, at the height of Britpop. I think it was actually in the issue select that had blur on the front that said, the we told you as the caption, you know. So everyone's eyes were on them and Oasis and Pulp and Elastica and everyone else. One page feature on Sweet 75. It's just completely out of place, isn't it? Well, it is. And also, I'm saying this, with the best one in the world even Las Vegas is a very striking looking woman that's how we shall best put it with unusually coloured hair yeah, she didn't and... quite fit the fashion of the times and I do remember some mentions in some less reputable music magazines kind of picking on their appearance a bit but I didn't even hear them on the evening session that's how ignored they were Absolutely. I didn't hear a note by them at the time so. yeah that, that just shows how out of time they were again Eva Las Vegas's look it's very now. Yes, and it was very yeah, about yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. But it wasn't 1997. So, you know, it's, uh, she would have fit in a, a bit better, you know, a few years after that. Kind of around the time Powerpuff Girls and that kind of thing came out. You you had more more women, particularly on the sort of alternative scene, with unusually coloured hair, with unusual fashions, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's almost like that came around on a cycle every so often and they were just out of step with that. But uh, Chris Novoselic certainly looks uh, sharp in the uh, publicity photos with his uh, sharp suit. Well, he looks even sharper in the sharp suit now because isn't he a congressman or something? He's definitely in into politics but I I wouldn't say I'm apolitical but I, I'm less interested in that side of things particularly when it comes to entertainers like one of my, my uh, favourite wrestlers a guy called Kane has recently become mayor of Knox County in America I don't care <laughs> I don't care I just want him to come back and shoot fire and chokeslam people you know it's like you know so yeah no. I, I, all if I he know did that in Congress that would be quite good <laughs> yes I think we're all we're all hoping that will happen. But yeah, no, it's kind of I do know Christopher Oslick is heavily into politics, but I couldn't tell you anything about the detail. Well, if after hearing that you feel like taking a chance on the Sweet Seventy Five album, currently one pound fifty two used and new on Amazon, then you'll probably be wanting something to play it on. When designer Daryl McLean appeared on the show, one of his choices was a souped-up CD player that somehow he never quite got round to buying. Basically, this was a very, very widely distributed advert around the turn of the decade. This is probably the most recent thing anyone has ever had on this programme. It's from about 2009, 2010. And the easiest way to describe it is this guy who's kind of Brian Butterfield in real life, but he kind of looks like a stray member of Marillion or something from his very flattering publicity photograph, had invented what is basically a CD player, (laughs) which rips to MP3 like all computers do for free. And it's just this giant silver box with a really wordy and self-aggrandizing advert for it, which was in, it was in Private Eye every issue, it was in Radio Times every week, it was in so many kind of middle-aged lifestyle magazines, I'm assuming, and everywhere you went you saw this, and every time I saw it, I was just agog at, how awful not so much that even the machine which is probably okay i'm sure it's fine i'm sure it works it's got a little kind of backstory it's got like its own um prologue as to why he invented it so martin brennan invented the brennan jv7 that was handy he has around 20 silicon chips to his name written over a million lines of computer code and co-designed the world's first 64-bit games computer Uh, i always like the promise of cds it wasn't so much the quality, but the quick access to a given track. So he basically, to sell his thing, he says, CDs are awful. MP3s are better. This is around the time the iPod was available by this time with an iPod dock. That technology was really developed. So he goes on and on about, oh, he, he, 
he kept having to buy more and more a five CD changer and a 10 CD changer for his car because his CDs were too short and he didn't know how to get them playing again, which makes you think he's supposedly one of the top software engineers in the world, but doesn't have an iPod or doesn't understand how to rip CDs, which people were doing like in the late 90s. But this is the best. This is the paragraph that I covered in Highlighter in an old Radio Times clipping. A few years ago, I had a go at loading my cassette collection onto a PC. Cassette were obsolete. That's the what it says, cassette. Cassette were obsolete, but I owned around 100. And the music on them reflected an important period in my life. I'd love to know the backstory. <laughs> His cassette years. <laughs> Him kind of <laughs> zooming down a country lane in an open-top car <laughs> With a big box of cassettes. I recorded all of the cassettes onto the PC over a period of several weeks. The thing is, I never listened to the music on the PC. Somehow using the computer to listen to music never worked out. Maybe the computer was in the wrong place. But I think it lacked the immediacy of a physical play button. In the end, the computer got a virus and the music files were lost. I still had the cassettes, thankfully. Some of the, the key points kind of done it's clearly adapted this habit from a powerpoint presentation he used to get investment from key points one of them load cds in about four minutes (laughs) it didn't take four minutes even to to rip them back then to the pc did it volume knob that's one of the selling points he's got a volume knob selection one of the other key points is delete tracks you don't like (laughs) but then works albums be even shorter well, I was going to say as well, you know, if you had the problem with CDs and the car being too short, get the Who Live at Leeds, the one-disc version of it. You know, not much journey is going to take you much more than 80 minutes, really. Another of this ones is small and tough enough if you are on the move, which, bearing in mind, you need to attach it to an amplifier and separates. <laughs> it's quite a claim, and the thing is clearly, it's made of, like, brushed steel, so it's incredibly heavy as well. Continuing on the Brian Butterfield note, used by restaurants, hotels, pubs, dentists, schools. Dentists? Is it used by croupiers as well? <laughs> Lord Mayor's croupiers. All these dentists who are annoyed that they can't play enough albums in the uh, <laughs> when they're trying to play the complete second series of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy during some canal <laughs> treatment. Well, that brings me round to the question I'm dreading to ask, which is, you know, when you think of that time, you think of MP3s, you think of the sort of stuff we were sending each other all the time. It was all really rare stuff from, you know, off uh, radio recordings or things ripped from vinyl or whatever. Can you actually load external MP3s onto it, or is it just your CD collection? It loads and plays MP3 from USB, to be fair, is on there, but it's like right at the bottom, and I suspect it's very complicated to do so. The irony is, this bot, as a CD player, it's actually quite nice looking, and I'll, I'll give yeah, him that. Yeah. It looks like I'd be very happy to get one for free. It can jump if I'm paying £329 for it. The price has gone up since. I've looked. He does still have a website for it. It does still exist. And he has since brought out a newer version of it, which doesn't do anything else. The 7.1. Well, I've got to say, I know it's a bit rude about it to begin with. I do like the idea. And, you know, I like something that is kind of encouraging the survival of the album-length format. It was just, as you point out, the advert that annoyed the hell out of me. It's all the advert. Like I said, I don't have much against this. I'd, I'd love to have one for free. It's it's a big heavy metal box and it's full of buttons. That's what I want out of technology. Another element of this, which which I can't overlook, is that this advert, the amount, it's a full page colour advert that was in all these big publications every issue for about two years. 
it must have cost him a fortune. All that money without actually getting an editor. See, it opens. Its opening gambit is basically, I don't like CDs. So what's the point in owning hundreds of CDs worth thousands of pounds? Yeah, cut to now. (laughs) (laughs) You You can't throw them away if you never listen to them. The problem with CDs is that it's quicker to make a cup of coffee than dip into a CD. What? I, I, I want to don't really understand what he's trying to get at, unless he's using his own, which takes four minutes. Try timing how long it takes to pick a CD, load it in the CD player, play a snippet from a track or two, eject it, and put it back where it came from. Now, I don't know if, <laughs> if that's uh, a common way of enjoying CDs. <laughs> Just sort of sampling them to see what they are. <laughs> also, his coffee standards must be pretty low, because I, I admit it, I, you know, I may be somebody who thinks... Mm, I've only left that roasting for 15 minutes. That's a bit on the short side. But even you must have the the cheapest mellow birds available for it to be quicker to boil the kettle and make coffee than it is to put the CD on. <laughs> just leave it in and press play with it. I've got the new Gals Coombs album in there at the moment. I could just lean straight over and press play if I wanted, which you probably shouldn't do for copyright reasons. Then there is the problem of finding music. The print on a CD spine is tiny. Right, OK, what CD is right in front of me? Nick Drake, Family Tree, OK? <laughs> Nick Drake, Time of No Reply. François Hardy, La Chanson de Moore. Now, I'm not picking these up looking at them. They are on the shelf several feet away from me. Fifth Dimension, The Magic Garden. There we go. What is tiny about this print? Buy I'd some like new be, glasses. I'd like to be his optician. He's not wearing glasses in the picture. That probably explains it all. <laughs> what if the track is on a compilation CD? Put you the compilation, the compilation. CD. <laughs> What if the CD is in the car? <laughs> Where's your car? Why is it so, how many miles away from you is your car? It started driving off by itself to go away. <laughs> Bloody car. It's, it's got my twofer of uh, sunflower and surf something. <laughs> the, the best, best bit, which is the most Brian Butterfieldish bit, the Brennan she starts calling it the Brennan, has a unique text search facility that shows a reducing number of matches as you press successive letters on the remote control. Once you get the hang of it, you can find one track or album out of your entire music collection in a few seconds. So, to find Ness and Dorma, you would press letters N, E, S, or D-O-R, and scroll through the short list of matches. <laughs> also, if he's looking for Ness and Dorma, that's, you know... On quite long albums, usually, surely, unless yeah. it's—I don't think it's a CD single or only available on a compilation. There was a CD single, but it was the World Cup theme, and the B-side was Oh Solo Mio. So, is that doing? Are we shortening down what what his CD collection is? Yeah. <laughs> so it's the CD single of Ness and Armour, which the car is always taking anyway. <laughs> A giant plastic box of cassettes. Of course, even the mighty JB7 won't have some of the side projects that David Bowie recorded in the 80s on it. Come to think of it, some of them aren't even on that forthcoming complete 80s box set called Intro from the Snowman or whatever it is. But that's a different story. When editor of We Are Cult, James Gent, appeared on the show, though, he wanted to talk about an actual David Bowie single from the mid-80s that's been completely forgotten about. That was When the Wind Blows by David Bowie, and it genuinely is one of those songs that no one would really be familiar with on account of it being not as well known as, as the film is actually derived from. I think it only reached number 44 in the charts, and there's a number of reasons for that. I guess because it's quite a hard sell, a song from a film about nuclear war. Well, having said that, there's an awful lot of songs from the 80s that were pretty much apocalyptically inspired and did very well. Uh, you know, 99 Red Balloons, 
Scorpio Switchblade, Dance All Over by Captain Sensible. But as anyone's familiar with When the Wind Blows will know, it's not a film that really pulls any punches. I mean, we're not talking about Threads-type documentary realism. In fact, I think it's more hard-hitting than Threads because it takes the form of an animation. It's based on a graphic novel, and both those things are kind of seen as very much aimed at kids, not adults at the time, you know, before we had this kind of uh, new respectability for those mediums. Bowie's track is interesting to me because, um, as anyone knows me, even slightly knows, I'm a big fan of Bowie, but I'm also kind of an advocate of the areas of his back catalogue that I feel are generally underrated and underpraised because they don't really fit in the narrative. You know, I'm talking about the kind of official narrative of career, which is basically, you know, everything he did after Scary Monsters, all that stance, you know, it's only just applicable, it's generally seen as um, nothing really of any interest. Fortunately, that seems to be turning around quite a bit, you know, but um, when the wind blows is right in there, I mean, it's only a couple of months after Absolute Beginners, which, you know, was his biggest hit, you know, until um, Where Are We Now? It's a number two chart single, and, you know, he was still riding high, I guess, on, um, you know, the exposure he had from Live Aid as well. It's roughly about the same time as Labyrinth, which itself wasn't a big hit at the time, but as a piece of music, it's probably slightly more accomplished than um, Magic Dance, shall we say. <laughs> it's an odd little thing, because at the time, you know, obviously he made two albums that were generally considered his worst. We're talking about Tonight's Never Let Me Down, but around the same time, even though his heart obviously wasn't in making full-length albums, it seems whenever we'll come up and say, you know, Dave, um, I'm going to write a film theme tune, you know, he'd come out with something really great, like Cat People, This Is Not America, Absolute Beginners already mentioned... And, um, you know, this one pretty much just himself and um, the guy, this guy called Il Kizilke, um Turkish multi-instrumentalist who, um, who kind of do all his demos before he took them to Niles Rogers to get, you know, prettied up. It's one of those tracks that's kind of a gateway to Tim Machine and then his 90s renaissance. I mean, sonically, it's very much a precursor to things like the title track of Outside. It's, you know, it's got very minimal guitar and electronic drums arrangement. It's not dissimilar to the um, version of Back in Anger he did a couple of years later. Which, um, you know, is definitely ground zero for Tim Machine, because you've got Bruce Gabrels making his debut with Bowie. I'm sort of like an audiobook of the Nick Pegg, completely different. <laughs> Well, was it Erdl on the updated look back in anger? Because there was some talk of him joining Tim Machine initially. So yeah. it really is a through line, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely one of those kind of precursors. Erdl was also pretty much the only musician on Iggy Pop's uh, comeback album, Blah Blah Blah, which also dates from 86. And again, that's you know, not only is that an underrated Iggy Pop album, because Bowie's all over it. It's a bit like The Eden Lost for Life. You know, he's co- when he's not co-writing, he's co-producing. And it's probably the best album David Bowie never made, especially if you put it side by side and never let me down. You listen to it and you're like, he gave all those great songs and tunes away and <laughs> left himself with an album, Time Will Crawl, and not much else. Well, I remember just on the subject of blah, 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 that I had that at the time because I really liked his version of Real Wild Child was a single and it was quite a big hit and I got the album. And obviously at that age and at that time, I didn't know you were supposed to think it was a bit naff in terms of classic Iggy. I really liked it as a youngster and I still really like it now. I don't see what the problem is. It's got a lovely sort of stripped down kind of machine pop sort of sound to it. I mean, it's basically, as I say, Bowie. Little Gazilke, Kevin Armstrong, um, who Bowie also worked with on um, Live Aid and Absolute Beginners, and a drum machine program by David Richards. I mean, that's it. But it's that sound. If you're going to pick an 80s sound, it's probably a lot more easy on the ear than the kind of Never Let Me Down, Everything But Kitchen Sink, Borneo Horns kind of soup. So, yeah, it's a nifty little album, you know. And as I say, I think Bowie wrote some stuff on there in terms of music and lyrics that is um, it's like the song I've chosen, When Wind Blows. It shows, you know, he wasn't bereft of creative inspiration or good ideas. I think it's just heart wasn't into it as a kind of full-time job, you know. I mean, that's why he was turning up in bizarre cameos in John Landis films and things as well. 
Well, going back to where the wind blows, I mean, I'm, I can't quite work out why it wasn't really a hit. I think probably, like you say, the nature of the film played into it. The film didn't get that wide exposure at the time either. It's a great song, but it's not that radio-friendly. But I think what's more interesting is what's happened since is... You know, it is a great track. It's highly rated by people who know it. He seems to be quite fond of it himself. But as far as I know, the only places it has ever been on at the time of recording, because that may change in the next couple of months, but I think it was a bonus track on Never Let Me Down, which is an album a lot of people will probably avoid in the first place. And on the the best of 80 to 87, which again, isn't the best kind of sell for a best of, is it? No, I'm, I'm quite impressed they managed to make that as kind of coherent as it is. I mean, again, I think partly because it does have those film songs that I think were kind of a bit more memorable and um, the likes of, say, you know, Dancing with the Big Boys or uh, Ricochet or Let's Dance. Or Never Let Me Down itself, which I'd never tire of pointing out. It's basically the theme from children's BBC animation, Gram. It's even got the whistling on it. Thanks for ruining that for me, Tim. I mean, it's such a stone-cold classic before. And, of course, James mentioned The Complete David Bowie by Nicholas Pegg there, which is one of the best encyclopedic resources you'll ever find. Unfortunately, the same can't be said of one of the items that comedian Ros Ballinger chose to talk about. Microsoft Encyclopedia was kind of like a mix between an interactive walkthrough video game and Wikipedia, but about the jungle. You would be kind of shown around, there would be different environments, so you could go to the Sahara or the rainforest or just various kind of nature settings. And this American sort of kind of guide character would essentially show you around with sound effects so you'd be pretending that you'd be walking through. But essentially all it really was was just a series of information pages with sound effects, really. I don't recall you could ever do anything in particular apart from click on certain things and read about polar bears or something. You know, I, m- I remember he would, he would give commentary and say, oh, watch out for the piranhas, and, and you would learn about different animals. And then I think the culmination of this was that you learnt about humans who were the most dangerous predator and it, it was like like the Wikipedia page, it had the picture in the corner and it was a picture of human was just of a baby, like an ordinary baby. The implication being, you know, it may look cute, but humans are the ones that kill all the animals. But it, it's not one because I remember being very excited about it when I played it as a kid. But it, yeah, again, when I look back on it, I think I must have been very easily pleased because it sounds very boring. But they, I think they did a good job of making essentially what was a wildlife Wikipedia into something very interesting because they included sound of, well, for, at the time, for the 90s, you know, decent sound effects and visuals and animations. And yeah, that, that was all available on a, on a disc that you put into your parents' ancient computer. Certain sound effects and certain bits of dialogue just sort of stand out. I used to spend hours on that thing. Well, yeah, there were quite a few things like that that Microsoft did, which is easy to forget how impressive they were at the time. And they came yeah, free yeah. with computers, because the ones that I specifically remember were, there was Encarta, which was yeah. basically like an encyclopedia, and you could look up, say, I don't know, the loot or something, and there'd be a brief history of it and the sound clip. And, you know, yeah. that, that sounds like nothing now. And, it, you know, it hardly had any facts in it, but that seemed amazing then. But the other one, which being completely forgotten about, was Microsoft Cinemania. I, no, we, we didn't have that one in the household, so I must have skipped over that it one. It was a database of films and sort of movie trivia and so on. Really, really odd, because it would highlight things that you wouldn't expect, like Dazed and Confused, which I think was only about 
two years old at that point, but that had a huge section and sound clips. I remember being really surprised by that because it must have been 95 because it was the first PC I got. It had Windows 95 and it had a disc of Weezer singing Buddy Holly on it, which I was deeply unimpressed by because in America they got Jennifer Aniston showing you how to use your computer, which I would have preferred to Weezer. But Cinemania, the thing was, it was very weighted towards mainstream cinema. And it touted itself as the most, you know, the most sophisticated movie fact repository in the world. And, you know, the first thing you do, obviously, at that age, you type in Cannibal Ferox not found. Oh, it's, it's not that exhaustive then, is it? It's, I mean, it sounds like that would have been used as like a newfangled promotional tool for films that had just come out. So they said, oh, we're going to promote it and such. such. And also we, we're going to partner with Microsoft and have all this trivia available. That never occurred to me, but that sounds pretty likely, actually. Yeah, I know. I never got this because I think we, we had a Windows 95 briefly and then we upgraded to a 98. I think the 98 is the one we had for the longest period of our childhood because I remember the dial-up noise <laughs> as, as, if, as if it was yesterday. But no, there's, there's, there was a viral tweet that went around a while ago. You probably still find it somewhere that showed the cover, and I think it was, yeah, I think it was um, Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry guide you through Windows 95, and I think somebody tweeted a picture of it saying, I found the most 90s thing in the world. <laughs> Sadly, pop comedy troupe The Baron Knights never quite got round to doing their parody of the theme from Friends. I say sadly, but they have a bit of a poor reputation these days. But writer Johnny Morris wanted to tell us why the balance needs to be redressed a bit and why we should all pay a bit more attention to one of their albums in particular. This is one of those things where people go, what was your first record that you ever had? And you sort of try and be cool and go, well, it was Video Kill the Radio Star or something. But the first record that I played a lot was Just a Giggle by the Baron Knights because I liked the songs and I did actually find it really funny, which is the tragedy of it, <laughs> because I was six years old and six-year-olds have a very sort of puerile sense of humour. And so the songs appealed to me, I think, because they are utterly, you know, daft and silly and you, you can get the joke. Even a six-year-old can get the jokes. That said, it is also a time cap. It's very sort of interesting that you have um, the songs where the jokes are that Prince Charles is in his 30s and hasn't got married yet. And you go, and he sort of fancies the three degrees. And you go, this is sort of an era you, you never understand. And there's a song about African politics. And there's a song which possibly might be interpreted as being slightly racist about African people working on the underground. Now, is this called Mind the Doors? Because I had to look at the track listing for this and I just my heart sank when I saw that. I mean, it is one of the knights doing the accent and stuff. Oh, no. So in a sense, it's, you know, it's, it's cultural appropriation you could say but it is very very positive because he's just going how much he loves living in london how much he loves his job and how friendly everyone is it's actually it's celebrating diversity but it's obviously one of the baron knights putting on the accent so you sort of cringe at the same time so it's never going to be regarded as anything other than dreadful the time capsule thing is you have a uh, songs about the nhs you have songs about who shot jr i mean one of the weird things with this is these would be the Baronites putting lyrics over well-known songs like, you know, another book on the wall. And so you'd have um, Who Shot JR, which would be using the music of Cars by Gary Newman. I actually really want to hear that now. I'd hate to be a Gary Newman completist because every Gary Newman completist would have to have this in their collection. I mean, it's, it mark, it's interesting because it marks out which musicians had enough of a sense of humour to let the Baron Knights do this to their songs. 
And so you go, the Pink Floyd people, Gary Newman must have gone, oh, I don't care if someone wants to release a silly version of my song, that's fine. But I didn't realise it was a cover. I just thought there's this great synth track that the band likes have done. <laughs> you know, this great bit of electronica that just happens to be weirdly about who shot JR. But again, that sort of really dates it, you know, because the Who Shot Jar was only sort of a mystery for about, you know, six months. Well, that's reminded me of something that nobody ever remembers. It's really burnt into my memory. It was when Channel 4 first started. I thought I had to watch everything that was on it that was allowed to. Now, obviously, there was plenty that you weren't allowed to. That's a show on Friday nights called The Cut Price Comedy Show, which was a, a fairly, even at that age, I thought it was quite an unfunny sketch show. But one of the participants was Roger Ruskin Spear, formerly the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band who did a song each week, a parody song. And one week he did My Friends Outside, which is a parody of Our Friends Electric, where basically it's like the synth riff and a robot saying My Friends Outside and him saying, well, tell them to come in then. I remember finding that incredibly funny, but it's one of those things nobody remembers the Cut Price Comedy Show. I'm amongst them, unfortunately. The band, I mean, they, they are that sort of era where things which weren't, you look at it now and you go, it's not that funny. But at the time, they seemed to be hilarious. And it's just, I think maybe people had a much more sort of, um, I don't know, puerile or much more sort of e- easier sense of humour that, that they would find more obvious things, less sophisticated things funny. Well, as well, I think children always like adults who aren't taking things seriously. The way you suppose, you know, you'd see people... Well, you wouldn't see Pink Floyd on top of the pops, but you'd see people like, I think, Fiddler's Drama parodied on it. St. Winifred's School Choir. You know, everyone's being quite earnest in their different ways. And the Baron Knight's just like, they don't care. And I think that that had some appeal. That's why kids like the Sex Pistols, I think. More than anything to do with punk was that, you know, they, were, they weren't they were playing by the... So there you go, the Baron Knight's and the Sex Pistols linked by something other than never mind the presence. It is sort of... um one of those odd things that the Bonzo Dog Doodah band are quite sort of highly regarded now. People go, you know, beer stroking, oh, yeah, Vivian Stanshaw, you know, Neil Lillian's. Whereas the Baron Knights, who were, I think, much more popular or successful than the Bonzo Dogs ever were, they kept on going for about 20 years, from like the very early 60s when they're parodying the Merseybeat groups and stuff, until about 1983, 84-ish, when I don't think they run out of steam. I just think the other people have taken over, the Grumbleweeds and stuff, and Russ Abbott and stuff, are now doing that sort of humour. And also, I think by that stage, the pop music scene had changed so rapidly that the idea of this band at the end of every year would, you know, putting out a record, taking the mickey out of a song, would be massively out of date. Well, I've got to say, the issue of accents aside, if there's anything good in them to rediscover, I'm actually all for that, because I never like the idea that something is labelled naff and that's it, you know, on the basis of what little surface knowledge people have, an outright blanket dismissal, because I can point to... A contemporary theirs in some ways, although obviously he was a kind of serious rock star, but B.A. Robertson, until recently, was seen as the epitome of, you know, 70s into 80s naff. I remember Twitter again, vitriolic when he turned up on an old Top of the Pops. But recently, now his album's been reissued, because I did some PR for the re-releases, and suddenly people were coming out of the woodwork saying, do you know, his stuff's actually really good. There's a couple of dodgy ones, and that's what people remember. But the rest of it's really good. So maybe there is some good stuff hidden in the Baron Knights somewhere. Yeah, I mean, B.A. Robson, I think Bang Bang has sort of wordplay, which you would never normally get in records at that time. You wouldn't get people doing puns or um, stuff like that. So it's, it's he was sort of like Ian Jury and stuff. I think he was much closer to that sort of type of music. For the Baron Knights, I would just say, on this record, you've got two standout tracks as far as 
<laughs> in, my, in my musical opinion. <laughs> Bounds Fun 40, which is just someone reading out the pop charts. They don't do it in the Sapple voice. Do they don't. They? they do a sort of Tony Blackburn type thing. They've taken a song and they've taken a band and put them together. So it's You Need Hands by The Stranglers. And <laughs> you see, you've laughed. <laughs> That's actually quite exactly. funny. <laughs> so you've got, like 30, you've got like 13, a run of these. Dive, Dive, Dive by UK Subs. And it goes at number 11, The Chance of the Exchequer. And that always just makes me crack up. That's actually genuinely funny, I think. And there's a track called Space Invaders, which is um, there's a sort of old pub song, the old barman who works at the plough. And they've done this as um, a piece of synth pop, as it were. And it sounds great. It sounds like uh, the normal. And, uh, and that's an early incarnation of Daniel Miller from Mute Record. Yeah. It sounds like the normal. It sounds like um, the band called Suicide, who just programmed a drum machine. to be. And it's like, <laughs> so you've got this amazing synthesized bass going thudum, 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 thudum. and then these little sort of space invader effects pew, 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 pew. And it, again it's i think it's actually genuinely funny in a way that i don't think people would give them credit for now so that's a that's a deep cut i recommend but before you go off hunting for baron knight's deep cuts here's something that you might have heard before this is me on the Betamax Video Club, an excellent podcast about 80s films, where you can also hear appearances by former guests including Emma Burnell and Ben Baker. I've been on it again more recently, talking about morons from outer space, but this is a clip from my first appearance talking about that brilliant 1986 flop, Absolute Beginners, although in this bit, I'm talking about a slightly earlier short film that Julian Temple, the director of Absolute Beginners, made with David Bowie. Really? The whole film should be celebrated if just for that opening scene alone, because it really is amazing. They claim it was all done in one shot, one take, and it does look like it as well. Just a camera panning and sweeping through several... It's obviously a studio set, it's not real streets, but that makes it all the more visually interesting. Just goes through, there's all kinds, all aspects of London life, real and imagined, all intermingling with each other, crossing each other's paths, literally in a lot of cases, Mm. with Colin, in inverted commas, at the centre of it all. And the interesting thing was that I had another watch of Jazzing for Blue Jean, which is a film Julian Temple did with David Bowie, I think it was two years before Absolute Beginners. It was to promote his album Tonight, which, if you ask me, needed all the promoting it could get. It's not one of my favourites. I don't think it's many people's. But that is a really funny film. It's an odd construct because he plays David Bowie, the real person, you know, this sort of down-to-earth chummy geezer, Mm. who, trying to impress a girl, takes her on a date to see... Well, he's called Screaming Lord Byron, but he's really David Bowie, the myth, the construct, who's a very pretentious, overdressed, drug-addled pop star, over-the-top lyrics, prone to headaches and so on. And they run up against each other in a fight over the girl, really. And the real Bowie says the imagined Bowie, you know, all kinds of criticisms like jokes about his recent tours and your record sleeves are better than the songs and that sort of thing. It's a really, really funny short film. But the interesting thing is there's a scene in there which is almost like a kind of doodle-in-the-margin idea for that opening of Absolute Beginners, where Bowie's walking down a real street in this instance, where... There's all kinds of people crisscrossing around him, going about their sort of nighttime business. Lots of musicians flitting and out sonically as well as visually. And he's just keeping up his monologue throughout. And it's almost like, I don't think it was a conscious setup for that opening scene of Absolute Beginners, but it's very definitely, I think it's the germ of the idea. I think that's where it came from. But the realisation of Absolute Beginners itself, that should be in people's favourite film scenes of all time. And yet it never gets talked about anywhere. Well, I hope you've enjoyed that collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar. If you did enjoy it, don't forget that you can find the full shows, and lots more besides, at timworthington.org. 
And if you're feeling generous, why not support Looks and Familiar by buying my new book, Can't Help Thinking About Me? More details again at timworthington.org, and in fact, there's an advert coming up in the minute. So I've got a question for you, Tim. All the way back in episode two, we discussed Sizzling Baker Monster Munch. We did. We came to the conclusion that all-round arsehole Piers Morgan was somehow responsible for the withdrawal of Sizzling Baker Monster Munch. So my question to you is, who should we blame for the fact that we can't get our hands on a tin of Quattro anymore? We're really quite spoiled for choice at the moment. <laughs> can't help thinking about me, like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers expert. More details, timworthington.org. Tim Worthington says, any chance of the astonishing theme from Ski Boy? Do you remember, anybody else remember Ski Boy? Wow. I can see Matt Berry doing this. That seems to be a French language thing that's been... Oh, I'm loving that. Let's try and get the full version of Ski Boy. Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks uh, to everybody who's sending these in. There'll be more of them to come, rest assured.